everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. We are 100% sponsor-based, which means that all the revenues we derive come from sponsorships. But I try to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically trying to choose those who have values well aligned to the values expressed on this show, like freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do is a few ad reads right here at the top of the show and then a few ad, ad reads in the middle. And I hope you won't skip them. I hope you'll take the time, listen and see what they have to offer, because again, these are hand selected sponsors. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Swan Private. Swan Private is a concierge financial services firm based in Los Angeles. Now, I've known the Swan team for years, and these guys are laser focused on the Bitcoin mission. They even have a zero tolerance policy for all shitcoining. Recently, their CEO, Corey Clipston, was instrumental in calling out many of these crypto scams right before they collapsed, saving a lot of people a lot of money in the process. Swan Private focuses on guiding high net worth individuals and businesses on all aspects of Bitcoin strategy, including buying, custodying, and market research. This concierge service provides you direct access to a private advisor by text, phone, or email. So go to swanprivate.com slash breedlove today to sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Ledin. Ledin lets you do more with your digital assets. For instance, Ledin offers a B2X loan product that lets you leverage your existing Bitcoin to buy even more Bitcoin. Or you can also get traditional Bitcoin collateralized US dollar loans through Ledin as well. Ledin also offers both Bitcoin and USDC denominated savings accounts, letting you generate yield on your digital assets. Recently, Ledin has launched a Bitcoin mortgage product as well that lets you use Bitcoin to buy a home or finance one that you already own. So go to Ledin.io, that's L-E-D-N.io today to sign up. Hey everybody, welcome to the What Is Money Show. Today we're going to do something a little bit different and play an appearance I did on the Survival Podcast with Jack Spurko. So this is actually going to be an episode of his podcast where I'm being interviewed uh, and we will be top talking about the topic of Bitcoin and survival. Um, Jack asked me a lot of really good questions, so I, I thought this would be valuable to share with everyone. So here we go. And with that, I want to say, hey, Robert, welcome to the Survival Podcast and the Bitcoin Breakout. Hey, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. We got a technical issue here. All right. So. I wanted to start out for people that don't know who you are. Can you give us a little bit about your background and tell you, tell us what made you come into the Bitcoin space in the first place? Yeah, I'll keep it brief uh, as I've shared this on other podcasts before, but um, my educational background is accounting and finance. I got a master's degree in accounting and finance. I was a CPA for a number of years and, um, I worked in public accounting, so was really focused on optimizing tax strategies for high net worth individuals and investment vehicles. Um, so I really got to see the belly of the beast up close in both education and professional life. And um, after leaving public accounting, I had been more or less been a career CFO. So 
uh, mostly focused in the tech sector. Um, and after I got out of that space, I decided that I really wanted to work for myself. I like to joke that I'm unemployable. Um, it's just, I guess when, once you've tasted the freedom of entrepreneurship, you kind of never want to go back. And so I had, I knew I really wanted to work for myself. I didn't know exactly what I was going to do. So I, I forked off initially and did some CFO consulting work. And that just happened to give me the bandwidth to start looking into other things. And this was late 2016. And in 2017, I started looking into crypto. And so my light bulb moment was reading Nick Zabo's work, which was written in the late 1990s on smart contracts. And he described how a smart contract can automate commercial relationships. He uses the, the proverbial example of a vending machine. Uh, as being basically a program that automates transactions between buyers and sellers. And my light bulb moment was, oh my goodness, the entire global finance industry is a giant smart contract constituted of human beings right now. And this software seems to be something that can disrupt a lot of that. So, you know, what a rough analogy might be what the industrial age did to blue collar labor you might consider this uh, wave of innovation would do to white collar workers. So that drew me in. Uh, and then I started investing in the space. We ended up launching a fund. Uh, so I operated a hedge fund in the space for about four years. And, um, you know, where money went, mine followed. I kept studying these assets closely. And over time, I've just become much more of a Bitcoin maximalist. Um, yeah, so that's kind of the short and sweet Genesis sure. story. I don't know if there's anything you wanted me to go into in particular. Just maybe just real quick. I, I kind of did the same thing, not really as a heavy investor, but I followed a lot of other projects. I always thought most of them were just doomed, but I always thought, well, there has to be something else. And eventually I came to a world where I'm pretty much Bitcoin only. What was the thing that pushed you across that threshold? Well, I guess it's a combination. One is, and I, I say this often, that people learn through pain. So made a lot of money on shit coins and then lost a lot of money on shit coins. So really quickly learned through firsthand experience that these things are essentially gambling devices. Um, but more cerebrally, the drilling into the concept of decentralization and that is the key property of Bitcoin that, that makes it so magical, frankly. And it's not something you can replicate in a lab or, or a software engineering studio. Um, there's kind of this idiosyncratic sequence of events that led to Bitcoin's emergence, you know, the disappearance of Satoshi. All of these things play into its credibility as a decentralized money, and you can't repeat that you can't rerun that sequence of events and imbue another project with decentralization so as we like to say in the bitcoin community all these other projects that claim to be decentralized are dinos d-i-n-o decentralized in name only and so i think that is the key there's other things we could talk about but that alone should make the point that 
the the magic of Bitcoin is that nobody can change the rules. No, when I say nobody, I mean no individual, no corporation, no institution, no government. No one can change the rule set, and that makes all the difference, right? It's essentially this this unassailable level playing field for money that we finally have a money that is equitable and just for all participants. It's it's not a pyramid scheme, unlike the current implementation of money we have in the world called fiat currency, where those at the top benefit at the expense of those at the bottom of the hierarchy. Bitcoin does not do that. Bitcoin is open source, right? Nothing is hidden. All the yeah. rules are symmetrical. They're, they're applicable universally and evenly to all. And that is unlike any form of money we have ever had. The closest approximation, of course, would be gold. You could argue that gold is kind of an open source technology. We all knew, well, let's say it established its value through a long sequence of, uh, of trading history, really. People just learning that you can't print gold. And the fact that it had certain chemical and physical properties that, that prevented it from being inflated or counterfeited made it the most superior money we ever had historically. Of course, the problem with that is gold is physical. So Bitcoin takes all the positive economic properties of gold and dematerializes gold effectively. So you get all of the benefits of gold without the shortcomings, which are related to the physicality of gold. So short answer would be decentralization. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I always thought with that, if... Uh... If there was a place for a cease and desist to be sent to where it could actually be followed, you're not decentralized. You know, right. if, if your crypto has a CEO, you're not decentralized. That's right. Sorry. It just or foundation or yeah, any of these things, right? Any, any of these legal entities that we typically look to for as a means of trust or credibility, they actually cut the opposite direction in terms of establishing decentralization. You want none of that. And only Bitcoin has achieved that. Yeah. And so I brought you on because I, I found you right by the time you started doing the, the Sailor series with Michael Sailor. Mm. And I found out you had a podcast called the What is Money Show. So I figure it'd probably be a good idea to ask a guy that runs a podcast called the What is Money Show. What is money? So how, how do you answer that question? Yeah, it's a really tough question, actually. Uh, I have a running document with, I think, over 50 five-zero answers to that question at this point. And these are either answers that I have read about, I have come up with myself, or guests have proposed on the show. And it's interesting, you know, it's kind of this philosophical question, right? The, the show is not, when people first hear about the show, they think we're really focused on money, finance, economics. And we are to a large extent, but we're also branching out into a lot of other topics you might not traditionally associate with money. And there's a lot of ways I can answer this question. One that comes to mind now I heard recently that I really like is money is liquid power. Um, and now if you've seen the Sailor series or you've seen the, the series I did with Jason Lowry, you'll probably have a good understanding of what I mean by that. Um, but I'd, I'd like to speak to the definition of power, actually. We typically, I think the word is most often used in the sense of political authority. 
someone having power or say so over the life of another person. But that, that's only one interpretation of the term power. There's this whole other domain that's extremely important, which is physical power, right? So I like to, to delineate political power and physical power. And physical power, I mean, there's a formula for it in physics. It's essentially joules moved per second, right? Energy moved over unit time. And that is exactly what we are trying to optimize for in the market process. We are trying to harness more physical power per unit of human effort. Um, that's the, you can, it's almost the same thing as uh, describing productivity or wealth creation. We're just trying to accomplish greater results with less effort. So money has this interesting intermediate role where it is a representation of physical power in the sense that gold was rooted in, you had to expend energy to discover, mine, and refine gold. That expenditure of energy that was necessary to produce gold is what secured its supply from being counterfeited or inflated arbitrarily. So gold is rooted in physical power, but the possession of gold gives one great political power. Because now, if you know, this is the old Rothschild quote, he who has the gold makes the rules. So if I have the gold, I can then create, I can pay soldiers and lawyers and all of these other things to create uh, a society that, that I sort of run and tax and extract from. So there's this interesting ambivalence when I say money is liquid power and that it, it is both a technology that is rooted in physical power which constrains its supply, but it also affords its individual possessor or possessors great political power in the sense that, um, you know, the, basically one way to say this, the United States is the superpower in the world because we have the most gold, right? After World War II, we had the most gold in North America. So we intervened into World War II declared ourselves victorious and then we rewrote the global banking rules in Bre at Bretton Woods, the Bretton Woods conference and declared ourselves uh, effectively the, the central bank of the world, right? The dollar would be pegged to gold, all of the currencies would be pegged to the dollar and this gave the United States the exorbitant privilege as the French called it to export inflation and import goods and services. So um, anyways, that's one answer to the question. And I hope it kind of highlights some key points that we talk about on the show. I think you're, you're dead on. And I think it makes a very good, uh, assertion of the, of the total to me, money is something that ha that has a value, but that value has to then be determined by the market. It has to be discovered across time. Right. It, and it's, it's what money has traditionally been, whatever humans have agreed within a given economy is money at that time. And over time, it seems that in general, the best form of money available to people at a time becomes the de facto standard, whether the government wants it or not. Eventually, that happens. And that's why I, at some point, expect to see a much broader adoption globally of, of Bitcoin. And yeah, I think, so go ahead. People, to your point, people, and this is such a key insight that I hope more people absorb people don't follow laws people follow incentives and when it comes to money 
every individual has the incentive to hold the money that no other individual can print or debase or counterfeit or inflate. That is why we got gold individuals figuring that out across a long span of history. We figured gold is the hardest thing to print, debase, counterfeit, or inflate. So it became the premier store of value. And that's what Bitcoin has perfected, right? For the first time in human history, we have a monetary technology that decidedly cannot be printed, counterfeited, inflated. Um, and that, that makes a world of difference. It's as if the entire process of capitalism has been zeroing in on this innovation. We needed a sound money to really make capitalism work um, and to depoliticize de the economic process, to get, which is to say, get government out of your pockets. Yeah. <laughs> what we've been trying to do throughout all of human history and Bitcoin is a tool that makes theft very expensive and therefore makes government less relevant. You know, I get the question all the time, where should I buy Bitcoin? And my answer in general is, I don't really care as long as you don't keep it there. That's right. I, I don't, you buy it from Coinbase. Okay. As long as you're withdrawing it the second it's yours, then I, I don't care where you get it. I care that you keep it. And it's, it's interesting to me that so many people still don't hold their own Bitcoin. And I think it's because we've been lulled into this belief that we're not capable of being responsible for ourselves. We need the banks. Mm. And so when you're using the exchange, you're using basically a, a unregistered securities bank or something to that effect, instead of being your own bank, which is so simplistic to do with Bitcoin. It was designed for that function right. and people don't do it. And I don't want to get deep. We, I mentioned real quick, the FTX thing. I don't want to get that deep with you on it. I didn't know if you want to talk about, that's why I asked and I could tell you, you didn't really want to go that deep into it. But it's just another example, right? Of why, you don't do this. You don't let someone else hold your property when one of the most valuable things about this form of property is you can self-custody it. That's exactly right. Um, on the exchange topic, you know, I'll do a shameless shill here. I'm an investor and advisor to Swan Bitcoin. Okay. And what I love about that service is it's automatic buy, automatic withdrawal to cold storage. So I don't do anything. I just say buy X dollars per day of Bitcoin and send it to cold storage. And it just does it every day. You do it per week. I think they do per minute, um, whatever frequency you want. And that, to your point, is getting the Bitcoin and then getting it off exchange, right? Yep. Getting it into self-custody. And only in self-custody are we able to realize the ultimate value proposition of Bitcoin, which is effectively zero counterparty risk, right? There, there's never been a digital asset that did not suffer from counterparty risk. The counterparty risk means you're basically trusting someone or you're accepting someone's promise to money or to an asset rather than the money or the asset itself. And with Bitcoin, it's trivial to take possession of or to take custody of your own assets that's the magic of it, right? Again, it is, again, there's this great incentive to hold the money no one can print. If you're not holding it yourself, then whoever's holding it can print more IOUs and say, hey, here's more paper Bitcoin. And they, you know, if you're on Coinbase or you're in a bank or you're with any custodian, you're just looking at digits on a screen. They can tell you whatever balance they want. That doesn't prove that they have the reserves to justify what they're representing to you. And so this yeah. is very important. Like people are almost lulled into this complacency of, 
whatever I whatever number I see inside of online banking is my money. Like, well, ask the Canadian oh. truckers about that. Yeah. Right. So a lot of people logged into online banking around that time and noticed, oh, wow, this money that I thought was mine has now been seized or frozen or reversed. Like it's again, private property rights. You don't have any privacy or really you don't really even have strong property in fiat currency. It's being inflated all the time. It can be deauthorized and it can be seized. Bitcoin in self-custody is immune to all that bullshit. Absolutely. Because you're not you just trusting someone else to screw you. You're not just trusting them that they won't screw you or uh, stab you in the back or however you want to put it uh, or seize your funds. You're also trusting they won't fail. That's right. right? So it's not just, it doesn't just have to be malice. It can also be incompetent. Yeah. And it can, of course, be incompetent malice, which I yeah. think is the majority of things. Uh, and the failure piece comes with leverage. And that gets you into the FTX story. Um, these custodians or exchanges, which are often one and the same, are quite often taking possession of depositor funds and then they're making bets with those funds. So this is like a custodial bank acting as an investment bank. And none of that is typically disclosed, right? It wasn't disclosed that FTX and or Alameda was taking directional leveraged bets in the crypto market space with depositor funds. Like no one, as far as I know, they did not disclose that. And then what happens? Well, the tide goes out and you see who's swimming naked and they get fucking liquidated. Yeah. So again, the number you saw on the screen that you thought was yours vaporizes. And that just speaks to the importance of self-custody and not your keys, not your Bitcoin, right? It's that simple. And you've got to take it very seriously. So two things that uh, I heard uh, on the Sailor series, and I've heard you say a lot since, is that Bitcoin is hope and mm-hmm. that Bitcoin is freedom. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I wrote a piece actually titled Bitcoin is Hope. And I think hope, obviously, is kind of an ephemeral term, but it seems to be key to the motivation that moves us forward. It's um, almost like a source of positive emotion, gets you out of bed in the morning, right? Wake up to do something, right? You hope that your efforts will turn into the outcomes that you desired, right? There's always this, there's this speculative nature to all human action that no matter what we do, we can never perfectly predict the result. Um, but in a game like fiat currency, you're further debilitated because you cannot, you can't play the game properly, right? You can't store the fruits of your labor effectively across time. So you can't build an economic base for yourself. And I think that inflation is really despair, right? It puts people on this hamster wheel of no matter what the fuck I do, I go to work. I work, Maybe people work two jobs, right? Working two jobs and they can't get ahead because they're on this, they're being victimized through fiat currency inflation. That's a good way to give someone a lot of despair and very little hope. And that no matter what actions they take, they cannot seem to translate them into positive outcomes for themselves. And when the game is rigged in that way, it's effectively hopeless. So, you know, Bitcoin, just a game with rules that don't change and favor the individual 
is therefore a source of hope, right? You can exit the fiat system that is causing you despair and hopelessness and move your life energy, your wealth into a new game that those types of shenanigans can't happen. Uh, so that's the hope piece. And as far as freedom goes, another one of these ephemeral terms, but I really like to think of freedom in terms of optionality. Like what options are available to individuals to deal with problems or to satisfy wants. And again, this kind of speaks to the entire game of economics itself and that we're constantly trying to compete with one another and satisfy consumer wishes better, faster, cheaper, um, to come up with good ideas, good tools, good inventions and sell those into the marketplace that gives consumers more options almost by definition, right? If you think of the caveman that wants to go from New York to LA, well, what are his options? He can walk. Maybe he can ride a donkey or a dinosaur. I don't know what, a, I guess cavemen weren't alive when dinosaurs were alive. So yeah. Dinosaur, some type of animal. Uh, you get a little bit into the industrial revolution and all of a sudden we have, Automobiles, right? That'll get you from New York to LA a lot faster. So you have additional optionality on transportation because you can accomplish your aim with less effort. Again, the economic, the purpose of economics. Uh, and then, you know, fast forward to today and what do we do? We fly from New York to LA in four hours, no problem. Uh, those are options that were not afforded to the caveman. So optionality is at least one aspect of freedom that I think is extremely important. And with, with fiat, again, you have this situation where in central bank insiders are effectively stealing options from outsiders. They're mm -hmm. stealing purchasing power. So if I had a million dollars in a bank and I know that I like to eat $100,000 of steak per year, I've got 10 years worth of steak in the bank account. Well, if the central bank goes out there and starts inflating the currency supply, debasing the per unit value of currency, which is to say driving up the cost of stake, they can turn my 10 year worth of stake savings in the bank account into five years, right? If they double the price of stake. So they're robbing you, they're stealing options from you. And that is clearly coercive to human freedom. Um, also destructive to just, human intercourse, right? No one likes to be robbed. It creates, uh, puts a bad taste in everyone's mouth. It creates divisiveness, confusion, leads to violence often. And so Bitcoin, once again, just says, fuck you to all that. <laughs> you can now hold your savings in a money that no one can do that to you. So you have, you have this unparalleled degree of optionality in terms of being able to preserve the fruits of your labor across time but you further have this unparalleled degree of optionality in your ability to move that capital anywhere in the world, right? This is just your private key is an alphanumeric string. Again, if you're in self-custody, you can move, you know, put it on your brain and walk across the border with a billion dollars on it. As the example, a lot of people like to throw out. Uh, I don't recommend brain wallets. I recommend geographically distributed multi-key or multi-signature custody schemas uh, in which you and a trusted few basically have a key quorum and you can unlock it and move it um, that way. 
that protects you from physical coercion, the $5 wrench attack and all that. But the point is, there's just Bitcoin gives the individual more options than he or she has ever had before. And it is at the same time devitalizing the institutions which steal options from us like the central bank and like the nation state. So, you know, Bitcoin is described in a lot of ways, but hope and freedom seem to be two of the best ways to describe it. That's a really great point, the optionality for defining freedom, because most people think of freedom as, well, there's no one that says I can't do a thing. Well, you can imagine a situation you could be in where no one says you can't do a thing, but you only have one choice. You're not very free. Well, that's the options, right? right. Yeah, you take the if options. Away you can't do a thing, and you have the option to say, fuck you and do it anyways. That's an option. You don't really have that option in fiat currency land, right? You try to send a wire and the bank says, hey, we don't like who you're sending it to. You can't say, fuck you, send it anyways. Yeah. Reject the wire. They might turn off your account. You may not be able to even get it out and find another way to send it. You may not get your money back. Yeah. Yeah. On who you're sending it to. So, But if I have self-custody Bitcoin, no one can say anything. Yeah, which is another good way to describe Bitcoin. Fuck you money. Yeah. Just lets you say fuck you to anyone that tries to intercede in your affairs. Yeah. And it kind of changes the definition of that as an old term where it usually meant that I just have enough money. I can do whatever I want. Right. This is more, I could do whatever I want with my money, which That's everybody right. always was That's learning right. to this false belief that they could, but, but no, you could try That's to right. send it to a, a country that's on the shit list right now. And you're not sending it to their government to buy tanks and bombs. You're sending it to your, I don't know, maybe your, your grandmother, cause you're an immigrant and she's trying to buy food and they tell you, no, you can't send grandma money to buy a sack of potatoes. And if you don't think that's happening right now, you're just not in touch with reality. Yeah, that's right. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it. Legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian, Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to, there's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. <laughs> like, I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> so with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. Wasabi lets you use Bitcoin privately while still maintaining full control over your money. Specifically, Wasabi Wallet is an open source, non-custodial wallet with privacy built in by default. By using Wasabi, you're effectively putting the private back in private property. Wasabi Wallet is an easy-to-use privacy wallet that can support any amount of Bitcoin transactions. So, go to wasabiwallet.io today to download this state-of-the-art wallet software. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Masterworks. Masterworks gives you access to the fine art market at more affordable price points. They do this by offering you fractional shares in their $500 million portfolio of fine art. Now, fine art is an alternative 
asset class, and historically, it's been a great performer and a really good hedge against inflation. Most investors typically hold anywhere from 2 to 10% of their assets in an asset like fine art. To sign up or learn more, go to masterworks.com and use promo code BREEDLOVE. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. The other side on the hope, I came up with this. I wanted you to see this, and I'm going to use it as a chance to pimp it to my audience anyway. Um, After listening to you talk quite a bit about this, along with Michael Saylor, but with other guests and on your own, the concept of having this, this hope for the future and what it made me think of is many, many years ago when I was a regional vice president of sales for a tech company, New York City was in my territory. And I'd walk around in Manhattan, I'd look at some of these churches that were built in the mid-1800s when we were on a gold standard. And I would stand, I'd look at this one in particular, and it, the whole entire church is nothing but sculpture. Mm-hmm. Like you literally can't build that today in a fiat standard. You can't put a guy up there with a chisel for 10 years for his one piece of the church. It won't work. It won't happen. We don't build things like that anymore. And mm-hmm. hope is the future. So when you were talking about hope and, and how you, you have the potential for tomorrow to be better than today, when you don't have that, it's a very dangerous situation. No, no person ever committed suicide who in their mind had hope that tomorrow would be better than today. When you get to mm-hmm. the point where you say, this will be the best it will ever be for me ever again, and I'm miserable, that's when people put a gun to their head. But long, it's not an on-off switch for most people. Like people walk around committing slow suicide with substances or diet or health all the time. And they know they're killing themselves, but they don't care. They've lost hope. They're not thinking about their kids or their grandkids, let alone their great-great-grandchildren. So when Mm -hmm. I look at Bitcoin, it's bringing back the concept of seven-generational thinking. Building things today for children I'll never know. The -hmm. old Greek proverb, when old men plant trees under whose shade they know they shall never sit. That's when a society grows great. Mm. And that's why I love the concept of Bitcoin as hope because I I tried to always think about my kids and my grandkids and it kind of ended there. Like I'll hand them as much as I can and then that's it. But the more I've, I've delved into this the, and I've built wealth with it, the more I think that they'll someday be, you know, children who will have to look up a picture of me to even know who I was. That something that we've left behind for them will still be there. And I think, honestly, at the foundations of what we call the United States today, that was the mindset that people had. A lot of them knew they weren't going to do that great, but they knew it was something better for the next generation. And so that's why Bitcoin is hope to me. That's well said. And another option that Bitcoin gives you is this ability to just hand your wealth directly to your heirs without estate tax and all this other extraction um, that alone can radically lower someone's time preference if they take it seriously right that you own 
you now own an asset that accretes purchasing power from every successful entrepreneurial activity in the world forever. Hmm. And it's an asset that no one can forcibly separate you from. Um, I would say that should give you the raw materials at least to radically lower your time preference and consider your present actions in the context of seven or more generations in advance. Um, and that I'm sure you're familiar with the concept of time preference. It's, Absolutely. You know, safety and popularized it. Clearly uh, an idea we need to get permeated more into the world, but I think it is almost indistinguishable from civilization itself. It's like the lower we can get the collective time preference, the more of those buildings you will see, right? The more of this sophisticated, beautiful architecture that takes 300 plus years. Um, and it's not just for aesthetics and beauty, you know, the longer we can engage in these roundabout production processes, the more advanced things we can create. Like if we're going to create spaceships and starships or whatever mega technological project, we have to have hard money. Like you can't, you have to have rock solid stability in the economic system to engage in a project that takes tens or even hundreds of years. And currently we just don't have that, right? We keep building our house on proverbial sand and that's why civilizations keep collapsing and, and we keep drifting into this overly politicized reality. Um, this is a key point too, that the hard, hard money is actually rewarding productive roles or productive people. And, you know, I often break this down into making versus taking. You may have heard me say this. There's only two roads to wealth in the world. You can either make it, right? You can actually get off your ass, do some work and create something of value. Or you can trade with other people, right? This is the, the way to make money or make wealth. The other road is taking. You can just take whatever the makers created by force. And so we can't change human nature so long as there is an option and in, therefore an incentive to take other people's wealth. Someone will always do it. You can't get rid of that. But what we can do is engineer systems that make that cause taking to be very expensive, mm. which is to say, make property very difficult, risky uh, to violate effectively. And then what what that does is it dissuades people from trying to engage in taking as a wealth acquisition strategy and leaves them with the only road to wealth acquisition as being making right the entrepreneurial path. So, and there's a great book. I've been talking about this a little bit. Uh, book's titled The Theory of Socialism and Capitalism by Hoppe. And he talks about once you institutionalize the, the violation of property or aggression against property, as he terms it, that people will start to shift into those roles, right? It's, it, if you can make a living aggressing against other people's property, someone's going to do it. And this is obviously bad for the people that are being aggressed against, but it's also bad for the aggressor because what's happening is the aggressor's skill set and personality starts to shift towards this political role that they are fulfilling to acquire wealth. So, you know, deception, intrigue, uh, 
bullshitting, all the typical skills you would associate with a politician, more people start to fill those roles and more of their uh, individual character development, the path of their individual character development starts to go away from productive roles and towards political roles. So there's this, and when you understand that the debasing of money is an aggression against private property, that's all it is. This is the key connection, I think, between the corruption of money and the corruption of man. When we corrupt money, we're institutionalizing aggression against private property. You institutionalize aggression against private property, you're incentivizing people to adopt non-productive political roles as a, mean, as a means of making a living, frankly. And then they start to forget, right? It changes their personality. It changes their, their moral composition. It changes their character that they become normalized in this, this political um, structure that they inhabit. They forget their productive skills or they fail to learn them. And so over time, what happens is the more rapidly you debase the currency, the more rapidly you're aggressing against private property, uh, the more extensively you're incentivizing people to adopt political roles rather than productive roles. And this destroys the moral composition of the world. It raises time preference and actually destroys civilization. When you're increasing the aggregate time preference and time preference at the collective scale is indistinguishable from civilization, you are actually pouring like corrosive acid on the binding material, the connective tissue of civilization, and it starts to break down. And that's what's happening right now. That's why people are fucking crazy. That's why we're going through this woke nonsense and critical race theory and, you know, no one knows their gender. Like all of this stuff is connected, I think, to the debasing of currency. I completely agree. And I want it all. I want it now. And when that becomes what everybody is, is saying, it might have been a decent song, but uh, probably not a good way to run a society. Want it all, want it now. And it's... It's led to so many of the problems that we have. A lot of the things, if you look at the nutrition in, in our, our system and the food system, how much can I get for how little, how quick? Mm. And then look at the health of people as we've adopted that mindset. It's just declined over time. And I think one of the really amazing things to me about Bitcoin is it reveals the lies that exist within the financial system. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a thread that many people pull. They talk about the rabbit hole or whatever. And a lot of people kind of go into just that space. But a lot of other people start asking a lot of other questions once they realize that, well, wait a minute, if I was lied to about how money works, if I was lied to about how what money is, if I went through 13 years of state mandated education, then maybe four years of university and money is this most dominating thing in my life and no one ever even told me what it was, then maybe people have been dishonest with me about other things. And they start pulling on those other threads like, well, maybe we shouldn't be eating the crap that they say we should eat. Mm-hmm. Maybe we shouldn't be taking the drugs that they say we should take, et cetera. And, I, I, and that's why I started doing Bitcoin Breakout as a piece of survival podcast, because I started seeing like all these people in the Bitcoin space start asking about the things that we've been talking about for 15 years now. And I, I think it is that that kind of just wait a minute, like it, it, everything's not quite right. And it leads to. And I've heard this put a bunch of different ways. I've heard things it's, instead of just number go up, freedom go up. I, I think Guy Swan was maybe the guy that I heard say that first. Um, and state power go down. And number state power go down. If, if freedom go up, then state power has to go down. That's how that works. And 
freedom is never granted. It is, it is, it is taken. It is seized. Yes. Right. That's the only way you get freedom. And so one of the things I hear you call yourself, and I'm like, I like this even better than Bitcoin maximalist, mm. freedom maximalist. Mm. What, what is, what is the concept of freedom maximalism? Yeah. I mean, you could probably retitle it as a pure libertarian. Like this is not libertarian in the sense of the political party. Yeah. It's that word's been ruined. Like many words have been ruined by the state. Uh, you could also classify me as a crypto anarchist and anarchy has a really bad rap. People think it's chaos. That's not what it means. The term archon means ruler. So someone that is politically superior to you and archon is without political rulership. So it's not no rules. It's no, no political rulership. You don't need someone to tell you what to do. Um, all we need government to do in theory is to preserve life, liberty, and property. And Bitcoin goes a long way to obviating the scope of government in that respect. Um, yeah, I mean, the lie thing is interesting. We're getting into Bitcoin is very much like being unplugged from the matrix in that way that once you realize the most desired asset in the world, which is the US dollar today, is the biggest pyramid scheme in human history, it, it really causes you to have kind of a rude awakening. It's like, well, that doesn't make sense. Why would everyone want to hold this token that they're getting scammed unbelievably, right? There's, people have never been stolen from to this extent for this long through this instrument. So that, I mean, really gives you a lot of dissonance initially. And then when you start to see through that illusion, to your point, what other illusions are you captivated by, right? The food, the drugs, the education, the entertainment. And herein lies the Bitcoin rabbit hole as you just kind of have your worldview shattered and then you're left to start taking responsibility for yourself and picking up the pieces and figuring out what is true on your own terms. And fortunately, we have a great community that's been going through this experience, this journey. Uh, obviously, everyone individually, but also kind of as a group, you see these patterns or these trends where people, Bitcoin's taking people back towards ancestral diets, towards traditional value systems. You know, there's a lot of people kind of returning to God and Christianity and not, not in any, it sounds a little cultish, but it's not like people are going back and saying, oh my God, I, I found Bitcoin and then I found Jesus. It's more like examining the importance of religion and its impact on obviously history, but also the software that we run, this cognitive mm -hmm. software that we run. These social institutions we've created are built into us, right? Like I, I've made an argument recently. This is based on the book inventing the individual there's a strong argument to be made that jesus christ contributed to the invention of the individual as a socioeconomic unit which underpins private property rights which got us into the industrial revolution wall street uh fang stocks and bitcoin right like you can't get there without these these normative structures let's say that often come from religion. So we're not, it's not so easy to disentangle 
it's not just, oh, do you believe in the guy in the sky or not? It's not even a guy in the sky. If you get really deep into the Neoplatonic origin of, of God. So anyways, I've gone a bit astray there, but it's fascinating. It's fascinating to see people engaging with Bitcoin and then it having such a transformative impact on their lives. Unique to each individual, but common. There's common themes, right? That people are just returning to, to ancient ways in a lot of ways. And um, yeah, you know, fiat, the whole premise of fiat is, de is a deception. It's a lie. This idea of, this is how we raise our kids, by the way, right? Do this because I said so. And if you don't do it, there's going to be a punishment. Well, that is necessary with children that have not developed adult rationality and reason, right? You do that with the the aim of cultivating them into an adult that you don't have to do that to them anymore. But when you, when it comes to adult on adult relations, this do this because I said so, or I'll hurt you thing does not fucking work. It's bullshit. It's a scam, right? Are you an adult? Well, then you can decide for yourself. You don't need someone to tell you what to do. And so the, the very premise of fiat is a lie. Right? You don't need someone to tell you what to do. And so the truth, I mean, the truth of that ultimately, I think, is everyone owns themselves. Everyone has the exclusive power to control their own body. Right. That's how we like I, only I can move my hands and my face. I have that exclusive power. You have that exclusive power. We all each and every one of us have this exclusive power. That's the truth. So why don't we honor the truth? And build a socioeconomic system that reveres that truth, which is to say maximally honors life, liberty, and property. That's what the intention of government is, is set out to be. If you go and read what the founding fathers wrote, right, they're largely Christian inspired. They were trying to create a decentralized government that governed as little as possible. And we did it sort of okay in the U.S. for a little while, and now we've gone... We're going towards this complete centralized shit show um, thanks to the implementation of the Federal Reserve in 1913. So hopefully Bitcoin is just an extension of that vision of the founding fathers. We, we just need to leave people alone. Everyone mind their own business. And if we want to interact, let's interact on a purely consensual basis. Yeah, I have said, I believe that had there not been slavery as a divisive issue at the time of the revolution, that the Declaration of Independence would have said life, liberty, and property. Hmm. But given it was such a tenuous issue between the northern and southern colonies, it's like, oh, that could be contentious. So we'll go with pursuit of happiness, right? Yeah. Because I, I've, heard, I've heard some arguments about that term happiness being having some deeper christian meaning in it but I, i'm with you we, we we 12 15 magna carta life liberty inviolable property that's what every fucking constitutional document should say because that's all you need once you have life liberty inviolable property you can go pursue all the happiness you want and you do it in a way that's not treading on the happiness of others my self-interest stops where your self-interest begins it's really simple property it's very simple it's really simple. As you might imagine, you're speaking to friendlies when you're speaking of anarchism here. Just yes. From the flag behind me, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. My my right to swing my fist ends where your nose begins. Yes. And it's so 
fucking obvious that I can't believe it's sad, honestly, to see people arguing against it. If we consider the most essential market for all, the market for human reproduction, all other markets exist to serve that market, by the way, right? We're animals. We want to reproduce. It's Darwinian. It's our genetic impetus is to propagate ourselves. We don't tolerate non-consensual fucking dating. It's not like <laughs> people can go out here and, I mean, you can, but it's not legal. Yeah. To go and take a mate and try to force her to reproduce or whatever. Like, that's insane. That's actually insane. Yet that's exactly how we treat our economic system. <laughs> we have people being forcibly extracted from. And we know like all everything, all the philosophical underpinnings of Western civilization know this to be an abhorrent evil that collapses civilization. Yet here we are once again engaging in it through the debasement of currency for our safety. Right. Print that money to fight the virus or whatever the fuck story people are making up these days. And due to the generalized ignorance of economics and money, they get away with it. You print $46,000 per U.S. household. You send each U.S. household $3,000 checks. They're happy because they got a check in the mail. You've fleeced them for the other $43,000 via inflation. Rinse and repeat. So, you know, I hope that this type of dialogue that we're engaging in is helpful in reducing that ignorance over time and hopefully eventually collapsing the scam that is statism it's it's definitely an awakening that's happening i think one of the problems is people get fully as awake as possible i guess to that at this present moment and then like somebody else starts to wake up and they beat the hell out of that person for not being all the way awake yeah. not remembering that it took them kind of like a sleep stage like coming back around to reality because there's a word for all this and why people make the, this deal with the with the devil basically and it's domestication Mm -hmm. yes. Go try to do to yep. a wild animal and the same species, one that's been domesticated, what you do to the domesticated animal, the wild animal will kill you, right? Go go try to milk a bison cow out at Yellowstone that actually has tolerated people getting close to them. You're going to get gored. It's yeah. not going to happen. And so people have become passive. And I you know, kind of encourage people, go feral. Be what you really are. That doesn't mean we start running around hurling rocks at each other because we're a cooperative species as it is. Yeah. War was not that common prior to what we call civilization today because war meant you had to go fight it or your kid had to fight it. And it was very costly in, in, in blood and treasure. And when we could outsource violence, right. when we could, we could have uh, forced by proxy. So then it just become war. Then it became taxation. It became all these regulations. And I don't think people even get in their heads that when they push a button for, you know, ask clown A over ask clown B in the next election, right. you're voting for force by proxy for the things you want right. on peaceful people. And I ask the question, what what are you willing to use uh, violence and force on peaceful people to have? Mm -hmm. And then people get really mad when you do that. I'm sure you've had the same experience. They get really upset with you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's like you're you're not you're not mad at me. You're mad at the question. You're mad at the answer to the question. You don't you don't like the answer to that question. Yeah, people. It's a weird thing. Uh, nationalism in general, I think, is this mass hallucination. Um, people get very wrapped. They get their identity very wrapped up in these lies. 
And then once you say something that perhaps throws some light on the lie or maybe shows some chinks in the armor of the argument or starts to crack it in any way, they rise to defend themselves because it's, it's been integrated into their identity. I've seen this with a lot of older people, a lot of older rich people. I'm thinking like my rich aunt that thinks the US dollar is like, oh, it's this thing that makes us great and you can't talk bad about it. Otherwise you're, you're doing, you're going against God. Almost Like she very much deifies the nation state, like the United States, right? She thinks that, I don't know, it's really bad. It's very pernicious because you're talking to the victims, not, not my aunt necessarily, but like on Twitter, I'm thinking, hey guys, uh, this debasement of currency is being used to extract your life energy and purchasing power. So inflation and taxation or theft, you know, let's do something about this. And then the very people that are being taxed and inflated will rise to the defense of the state and say, well, what about the roads? What about the schools? What about this? What about that? Like, yeah. What in your fucking mind makes <laughs> you think there's anything that can be built with non-consensual exchange that we can't build more efficiently with consensual exchange? Like, it, it, I can't think of anything more obvious. I can go back to the dating example. It's like, okay, we want to be fruitful and multiply. We want a lot of happy people making a lot of new happy people. Should we do that with consent or non-consent? Like, how do we maximize the number of happy people we create? Is it consensual sexual activity? Or should we have people going out here raping people to make new people? And this is a very, like, people freak out about this comparison, but it's literally just the performative dimension of consent. Is it consensual or not? It is that simple. Do both parties agree or not? Does one party have the option to say no and the other does not? That's non-consensual. If both parties have the option to say no, then it's consensual, right? You let people self-organize. And I like that you brought up domestication because that is what it is, right? We, we obviously, domestication is good i would argue now there's a lot of people that argue against me about this i think domestication is good for human and animal relations right we need to domesticate animals to eat to create products i think the animals are here are they're put for our use on this planet there's a lot of ethical vegans that are going to just harangue me for this but that's how i see it now Domestication is great for human on animal relations, but when you apply domestication to human on human relations, it's just like trying to put fiat on adult on adult relations. It doesn't make any fucking sense. No one needs to be domesticated. If, I don't know, man. It is honestly scary. It's scary seeing how people react to these types of conversations, seeing how the victims react to these types of conversations, because it's not often what I would have hoped for. I would hope that people would accept, you know, get this little glimmer of truth and maybe go through an awakening. And many people do, but there's a lot of people resistant to it. And at that point you have the slaves defending the masters. Correct. That is a weird, weird thing. It's more well, will though, right? Because the more generations you domesticate, the greater the domestication, right? Stockholm syndrome. So not even Stockholm syndrome. Think about your relationship with your dog. I love my dogs, right? Mm -hmm. But my dog will kill you if you try to hurt me. Yeah. There's no doubt though that I am that dog's master. Mm -hmm. Now and I'm with you. I think that kind of is a naturally progressed relationship between canine and human. And the yeah. dog benefits from it. The human benefits from it. 
But there's no reason to think that if we domesticate humans, they won't defend their masters. Right. And the more years of domestication, the harder it is to reprogram again to release it. Because there are a lot of people, if you gave them total freedom, they'd run away from it. Yeah, it's scary. It's a very strange ethical line to observe. Um, and I, maybe, I don't know, maybe some people have been so conditioned into domestication that they're happy doing that at this point. And all of this freedom talk is extraneous for them, maybe. But man, that just seems like it's very restrictive on human potential. Like if we're busy domesticating one another, then we're not busy innovating and solving problems and going to the stars. Like we have so much great fucking potential, but we keep engaging in these self-destructive patterns. And, you know, I hope, I I guess the great promise of Bitcoin is something that just inhibits some of that self-destructive tendency that humans exhibit. Can you talk a little bit as we get here near the end? I want to be respectful of your time today, but about the first principle and exchange, right? Like, I think that that's, that shows right now the power of Bitcoin. Cause I hear this, is it a medium of exchange or is it a store of value? And I almost think, well, it, it kind of has to be both or you don't have either. Yeah. You know, so I wrote a piece about this saying exchange is the first principle and this one's really difficult to talk about, but um, there's a physicist named Brome, and I think he described reality as an unbroken wholeness. So we often think, you know, we have this reductionist mindset, and this is all left hemisphere, that we try to categorize things. We put things into buckets and words, and we're always reducing and categorizing, and that's how we deal with the complexity of the world. That's what we're doing with language too, right? We're assigning, we're mapping meaning of individual words onto things or concepts in in lived experience. And that's useful for navigating reality, but ultimately everything influences everything else, right? Everything touches everything else. It's just like we're in one big ocean with no shore and no surface. Um, It's all energy, right? It's people have energy, instruments have energy, buildings have energy. And so the constant interrelation of all these systems of what, you know, your body's a system, you live in a social economic system, there's a moral code, there's legal codes, there's all these systems vibrating around you all the time. The means of interrelatedness between all of them is exchange, right? So the whole universe is constantly engaging in exchange with itself. So That's way out there, way deeply philosophical. But if you look at the etymology of the word God, actually, and you go to the Proto-Indo-European root, you find the word gut, G-H-U-T. And if you look into the the definitions of this word, it has, I think it has four definitions, two of which are to return and to barter or exchange. So God is... And again, etymology is so interesting because language is open source software, right? It's not like there was a government that decreed the meaning of this word and it went on across time. I mean, maybe there's some edge cases, but if you really get into etymology, it's like walking backwards through the developmental pathway of this open source software we call language. So when you get deep into etymology, you find these meanings that were emergent, right? They were market determined, not government decreed. 
So you find like the real meaning of the word. And I find that almost overwhelmingly fascinating. <laughs> the word God is rooted in gut, which is rooted in exchange. And, um, and again, it was to barter or exchange. So it implies consent, right? There is no such thing as non-consensual barter. By the way, that's called theft. So this idea of free exchange being intrinsic to the biggest, most mysterious word of all, uh, again, etymologically determined, is so fucking fascinating to me. Um, and I think ultimately, if you just honor that, it's like, again, creating a system that honors what we observe in reality. We observe free exchange occurring everywhere. Why don't we just embed that into our socioeconomic structure? And that maximizes wealth creation, human freedom, human flourishing. The alternative is, well, let's just, we observe animals killing one another in nature. Why don't we just do that? Right? We can be animals. We can do that. We've already done that. We can go back to being cave people. If that's how we want to live our lives, and let's just do that. Let's just all kill each other and rape and pillage and destroy and murder and live hand to mouth. That's easy. That's the, e that's the natural state. Or we can take this inheritance of all this thinking and philosophy and economic experimentation, political experimentation we've seen across history and try and create something better, right? Become civilized, uh, transcend our animality, evolve. And we've made great strides to this effect as we're proving by being on this digital you know, show, right? This innovation occurred because of freedom and strong property rights and the innovation that, that those things afford. We could also continue on that process. It's the harder path. It's the more sophisticated path. But man, it sure seems to be better, right? This seems to be better to me than living like an animal. And that's all we're trying to share with people here. It's like, which way do you want to go, man? Back to the, the fucking prairie or to the bright, shining city on the hill, civilization, whatever that is. So, yeah, just mind your own business and let people exchange freely and self-organize and you get the best outcomes. And thank God for that. Imagine if we didn't get the best outcomes letting people self-organize. What if it was economically efficient to coerce people? we'd really be fucked because you'd have this moral conundrum. Like, do, well, do I coerce them and eat or do I not coerce them and become an animal? Like, thank God it's structured this way. Yeah. And if yeah. We you know, you were talking about earlier how they start. Are, the richer we are. You, you know, you're saying earlier about like the whole who will build the roads and schools argument where they start defending the, the state. And my response to that is always, so tell me about a time you had to go interact with the state like the DMV or any institutional level where you had to go talk to government employees to get something done that you were excited about doing it. And you just get this look of, I, well, you know, like as though that's not a reasonable question to ask in that. So right. why do you think they're really efficient at building roads and schools? Right. Well, we know they're not. And by the way, do they actually build roads and schools? No, they steal money. Yeah. And then they hire private yeah. companies to inefficiently build roads and schools yeah. where they, they have opportunity. You know, I know, for a fact, we have construction companies here that are like subcorps. They're set up. They get a government contract. They suck all the money out. They go broke. They never finish the project. Another company comes in and does it. That's owned by the same company. Hmm. I know several people who have basically retired on that, running companies like that, and, and never completed a project completely. 
Yeah. Right. So, and that happens all the time. And why wouldn't it happen when there's no alternative? Right. When there's nobody competing for that business. And if you ask them if they like monopolies, they always say no. And then when you point out the largest monopoly is the state, they they don't like that. It's right. and I don't know that we're ever going to get through those people, but it is a phased wake up. And I think a lot of it is what I'm encouraged by a lot is the the massive movement in homeschooling. Yeah. We homeschool yeah. our grandparents. I'm like, I'm not letting the state have my kids. Yeah, no. for sure. No. Yeah. The, the whole idea of the profligacy of the state, right? It's obvious when you consider, we call this a free roll in Las Vegas. If someone is going to stake your bet, well, then you're going to fucking take the bet. What do you got to lose? You have no downside. You have upside only. So of course you're going to take the bet. Well, what is the state doing? They're spending stolen money. They have no downside. They didn't work to earn that money. They stole it. Yes. How does it get spent? Foolishly. It's not a surprise. Like it's so obvious. I'm just amazed that people, I guess, haven't thought about it. You just haven't thought about it enough. And so hopefully, again, this conversation and the general resurgence of dialogue and podcasting, especially in the Bitcoin universe, is hopefully helping people think more about how we organize ourselves. So last one I have on the outline here from you is that Bitcoin is a global declaration of independence from the central bank tyranny. Mm. Talk a little bit about that. And if you could, maybe a little bit about central bank digital currencies, because that's coming in, I think, in various flavors all over the world. Yeah, I've got to keep going here. But I mean, I would just say that central bank digital currencies are everything that's wrong with fiat currency amplified. So you have even less privacy, less control, et cetera, over your assets. Uh, it's very likely that it will become part and parcel to a social credit scoring system like we see in China, where if you don't do what you're told, talk how you're told to talk and act how you're supposed to act, you'll get your money turned off selectively um, based on government policy, which is just a totally fucking Orwellian dystopian nightmare. And Bitcoin is a declaration of independence from all that bullshit. So if you don't want to live in the modern Orwellian slave complex, then you can hold freedom money, which is Bitcoin and do as you please. And, uh, I so said, I, you know, respect your time and get your out, out an hour was about where we are uh, from a scheduled time. Anyway, you rolled a little early, but get a good plug in for the work that you're doing right now, Robert. Tell people how they can learn more about it. And for those in the video, I've got your uh, your your podcast website up on the screen. Yeah. Podcast website is what is money podcast dot com. It's got links to all the socials there. Uh, my biggest social media platform is Twitter. I'm at breedlove22. That's B-R-E-E-D-L-O-V-E-2-2. Um, shoot me a DM. I'm, I'm very passionate, obviously, about all this and happy to be participating in what I consider to be my life's work and hopefully helping push the world in the right direction. So um, anyone else that, that's out there that's trying to do something similar, feel free to reach out. 
Well, and I, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show with us today, Robert. I will have links to your social, everything you sent me, all your social media sites, your your podcast website, etc. Also have links in the uh, show notes today to the Sailor Silly series book uh, that you guys put together. I remember listening to that and going, this needs to be a book too, uh, along with a few other things. And that will turn up about one hour after we sign off of the live feed. Thank you for being with us today, man. Thanks, man. This is great fun. Thanks for having me.